Do you want to learn about psychological growth without sorting through the jargon? You're in the right place. This is the Relational Psych Podcast. I'm your host, licensed therapist Tyson Connor. On this show, we learn about the processes and theories behind personal growth and experience a little bit of it ourselves. Join me twice a month for candid conversations about therapy and psychological concepts with real mental health professionals using understandable language and simple experiments that you can try yourself. Keep in mind, this podcast does not constitute therapeutic advice, but we might help you find some. And today, my guest once again is Mati Massaro. Mati is a clinical psychologist from Argentina and a psychiatric ARNP who is completing his uh, doctorate in nursing and psychiatric prescribing. Um, and he is also the founder of Cognia Health. Mati, welcome back to the podcast. Oh, thank you for having me. Absolutely. I'm excited because today we are going to answer the question. What is an SSRI, and when might it be helpful? Yeah, no, I'm, I'm excited to talk about this. It's a very common topic for good reason, and we'll cover that in a minute. But it's a thing that I am always looking forward to discuss and see how it could be helpful and get a little bit of more understanding on how these very common medications work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, listener, from the, from the very first time that I uh, talked with Mati about coming on to the podcast this this was like what i wanted to do so <laughs> if i'm a little excited today you'll know why hopefully <laughs> um cool so let's let's just start with the beginning what yeah. is what does ssri stand for what are those letters and what do they mean <laughs> no of course so ssri stands for selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor and this is kind of like a a, a weird complicated name but it honestly is almost self-explanatory, to be honest. Mm. It's all in the name. So let's start by saying, what, it, what is serotonin, mm-hmm. right? And serotonin, for those who may not know or may never heard of this word, is essentially a little communicator. It's technically called a neurotransmitter, and among the neurotransmitters is particularly one that belongs to a family of the monoamines. But essentially, this little neurotransmitter, it's a way to communicate between cells in our brains, those famous neurons, mm-hmm. right? Cells in our brain communicate with each other using these messengers, these neurotransmitters. Okay. And among these neurotransmitters, we have a very important one, which is serotonin. So serotonin is not even just in our brain. It's in different parts of our body. It's particularly in our central nervous system. But it can also be found in our GI or even in parts of our platelets. And that's why... I know, I know. And that's why serotonin does a little bit more than what we think or uh-huh. traditionally have thought. So just to, like, review the things that, that you just said and try to restate it and make sure that I'm following you correctly... Um, so serotonin is a neurotransmitter, which means it's a molecule that travels between neurons, brain cells, to help them communicate to one another. Yep, you got it, man. We know at least it does that, but there's other stuff it does that we don't really know exactly because we see it in other parts of the body besides just neurons. It's also in blood, 
It's also in our gut. It's just kind of through our whole body. Exactly. And because it's in different parts of the body, and it's a complicated element, it can have all kinds of effects in our Mm -hmm. body. So even though there are many ways that those effects may not be fully understood yet, there are a few elements that have been observed through clinical trials. Okay. So, for example, we understand that to a certain degree, serotonin has effects on our mood, okay. on our experience of anxiety, cognition, our reward system, learning, memory, our sleep and alert cycle, our bowel movements. Oh, and interesting. Our, I know, and our general peristalsis, which is why... We may be talking about this in a minute with adverse effects. Uh-huh. <laughs> I know. Preview. I know. Also related to this is nausea and vomit response, mm-hmm. clotting and wound healing. So as I mentioned a minute ago, there are serotonin elements to platelets in our blood. Interesting. I know. So sometimes when we have some wounds, you know, like a little scratch or whatnot. And our body's trying to clot, essentially, and stop the bleeding. Mm -hmm. Platelets do release serotonin to aid in that clotting and healing for that wound. Wow. I know. It's weird, right? (laughs) Yeah. So it sounds like, from what you've described so far, it sounds like there's kind of like three broad categories of things serotonin impacts. The first is this sort of mental neurological function, yes. and that's the cognition, memory, learning. Um, and then the second is this sort of gastrointestinal GI gut Correct. function, pooping, you yep. know, nausea. Yes. And then the third is this sort of uh, like blood and healing function, where yes. it's involved in clotting and healing. Yes. And, and I might even add either a fourth or a subcategory related to our brain, Mm. which is related to sexual functions. Okay. Which is also a preview for the adverse (laughs) So much foreshadowing. (laughs) (laughs) But we have found serotonin to have a relationship with sexual functions Mm -hmm. and why sometimes serotonergic medications may have sexual dysfunctions. Okay. But as... As exactly as as you were summarizing amazingly, serotonin has effects on a variety of things. And like I was saying before, these are just the ones we understand so far. Right. It it sounds like this is a particular... Is it a hormone? It's a hormone. Well... It's a neurotransmitter. Okay. To be be precise. To be specific. It's a neurotransmitter. Yes. And we don't fully understand... Everything going on with it. Correctly. And not only we don't fully understand all the possible effects of serotonin, mm-hmm. but this goes ties to the second important point. We don't also understand all the possible effects that an SSRI can do. So uh-huh. going to back to the name SSRI, right. Selective Serotonin Reaptake Inhibitor. What do those weird words mean? So we were talking about cells communicating with each other through messengers, through these neurotransmitters like serotonin. Throwing 
molecules back and forth like they're yes passing notes yep almost like a little messenger owl right <laughs> <laughs> sending you hogwarts letters right. and all kinds of things uh-huh. and sometimes if not all the time cells overproduce the amount of messengers oh interesting yes and between these cells there's a little bit of a recycling enzyme or a recycling transporter uh-huh. and this transporter is in charge of the reuptake of these leftovers so uh-huh. those leftovers are recollected and reuptaked to go back to the initial communicating cell and see in a see in a way look you, you you have a a little bit of an excess of serotonin that the second cell didn't need. Uh-huh. Let's recollect it. Okay. So I my my mind is giving me a picture uh, yeah. like as an analogy. So I'm going to kind of put it out there. Please. If we think of it as like like messenger pigeons. Yes. Say that. You've got one cell that's like a castle over here, mm-hmm. and it's trying to send a message to the other cell using these messenger pigeons. Yes. And it sends out seven or eight pigeons with the same message. Yes. Assuming that half of them will make it. Yes. It sounds, so that's, that's kind of what our brains do. Our one neuron sends out a bunch of the serotonin, assuming that a certain amount of it will get lost along the way. Sure. It sounds like, to use this castle analogy, mm-hmm. there's one of these little serfs, one of the little peasants, whose job is to go out into the countryside and collect those lost messenger pigeons. Yes. And bring them back so that they can be used to try to send another message in the future. Exactly. Okay. They are recollected and brought back to the original castle. Okay. Now, what does the serotonin reuptake inhibitor does? It inhibits the reuptake. So you are telling this peasant to Uh take a break. You have a day off today, sir. Yep. Okay. And it leaves more of these pigeons, more of these messengers in the space between neurons called the synaptic cleft. So okay. in this analogy, there's the, the pigeons are not immediately recollected. Uh-huh. And you're essentially telling the peasant, you know, we're going to chill for a minute. We're going to let the pigeons fly around a little bit more. Yeah. Because the second castle may benefit from a few extra pigeons right now. Oh, so and it like gives the pigeons more time to get to Is that where it the serotonin ends up? Does it like eventually get to the cell it was going for? Yes and no. Oh. So mm. <laughs> <laughs> So what we see is that the second castle or neuron mm-hmm. has more serotonin available yep. in the space for incorporating into the castle or the cell uh-huh but having a little bit of an excess of serotonin in the synaptic cleft in the field of pigeons has been observed to create an effect on the originator cell as well oh creating a downstream effect on how the originating cell could adjust how their pigeon process uh-huh. could function differently. So it's like the castle that sent out the pigeons keeps a stable of like 16 pigeons. Mm-hmm. They sent out eight, 
Four of them make it to the new castle. Four of them are left out in the field. You, they usually you send out the serf to go and collect the extra four and bring them back, and then you breed more pigeons to make sure you always have at least sixteen ready to go. Mm-hmm. What the SSRI does is give the peasant a day off, mm-hmm. and as a result, those four pigeons in the field, some of them will end up making it to the second castle. Yes, and at the first castle, they're going to breed more pigeons more quickly. So that they can keep up to their quota, basically. And some of those pigeons might eventually, you know, for the purpose of this analogy, yeah. come back. But with, let's say, more information. Uh, let's say in this analogy, look, we realize that this path between castles usually has a tornado in the middle. Mm, And we mm -hmm. should, you know, maybe we should design a new route to communicate between castles. Again, this is an analogy, Yeah, yeah, yeah. The pigeon comes back a little bit tattered, and we think maybe we should train them to avoid the tornado. And and it will create adjustments in both ends. That's kind of what we are observing. Mm -hmm. So, in technical terms, if you will, it will increase the serotonin signal between both neurons eventually. Okay. Having these extremely interesting and, 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 and a little weird, if you will, of uh-huh. an effect that we don't completely understand. But by blocking that serotonin reuptake, uh-huh. by giving time off to that peasant, we see a, a lot of these effects. One of them is the one that we just talked about. Uh-huh. But we also see other things that okay. we don't completely understand. So the analogy will fall apart here, but I'm curious oh. to hear what. <laughs> we go from pigeons to cyberpunk robots in a okay. second. <laughs> here we go. <laughs> but essentially, besides this effect that has been sort of the traditional understanding of what's going on. Uh-huh. These recent, these past recent years, we are observing even more and different effects than SSRIs can have. One of them is how there is a particular factor called BDNF okay. that stands for brain-derived neurotrophic factor. Whoa. I know. We see that through SSRIs, we see an increased expression of these processes which eventually is understood or hypothesized that contributes to increased neuroplasticity. Cool. So I want to define some terms for our listener, because I know what most of those are. Um, Neuroplasticity is Mm -hmm. basically the ability of a brain and neurons to adapt Mm -hmm. to changes. Plasticity in this case means kind of like flexibility. Mm -hmm. You want your brain to be able to respond to new information. You don't want to just do the same thing over and over and over again. You want to be able to like adapt. Um, Think of it like, uh, like the difference between driving a car and getting on a train, right? A train can just go one way and you can change how fast you go, but like you've got one track with a car. You can go different paths to get to the same place. Neuroplasticity is your brain's ability to adapt to new situations. So to like try to bring it back to that analogy in a way that might stretch it a little too far, the, this process by which you give your pigeon-collecting surf a day off 
leads to a pattern where the castles start to pay more attention to the routes they're sending neurotransmitters on, the routes they're sending their pigeons on. And now we're not talking just two castles talking to each other. We're talking a whole network, a countryside full of castles that as they start to pay attention to how they're sending messages to one another, it's not just changing the way they're sending out pigeons. It's changing the way they're sending out carts with donkeys. Yes. It's changing the way they're sending out knights. Yes. It's changing the way that the entire network of castles is rethinking how they connect. Exactly. And what we've observed with some of these processes, it's also a possible effect on inflammation. Oh. Yes. So one of the etiologies and current hypotheses of depression it's related to inflammatory markers. Interesting. And inflammation in general, some tests for something that's called C-reactive protein, which can be a marker for general inflammation in the body. Mm -hmm. So by by decreasing inflammation possibly through this mechanism, we may start observing some of the SSRI effects on mood anxiety and other indications that we'll discuss in a minute. Yeah. And and for the listener, inflammation doesn't mean that you're on fire. It means, <laughs> as I understand it from my anatomy and physiology class from when I was a senior in high school, inflammation means there's more, usually more blood in a space than it's kind of meant to hold. The space is a little stretched full of fluids, usually blood. Is that well, accurate? It, yeah. It, like it, swelling? Uh, I, yeah, exactly. I would describe it... In the terms of swelling. Mm-hmm. Okay. And one other part to make this analogy even a little more, you know, testing <laughs> <laughs> is that there's also a component to SSRIs that shouldn't be ignored, uh-huh. which is a placebo effect. Right. There's a component to SSRIs. It depends on, on different clinical trails. But sometimes it can go, you know, 15 to 30 percent of an SSRI having a placebo component, which is not to be mistaken in general as something bad. Mm. The placebo effect, it's incredible. Right. Yes. It's, it truly is incredible and it's effective. And what we've learned with the research is that the placebo effect is basically immune to knowledge. In other words, folks, can understand that something might be a placebo effect uh-huh. and it does not prevent the effect from working. That's incredible. Um, listener, if you're not familiar with the placebo effect, uh, there's a really good early radio lab episode about it that I'll probably link in the show notes, which I think is great. Um, but the short version is sometimes the act of taking something that you think might help you will be effective in helping you even if there's no reason why that thing should help you. So, for example, if you have a headache and you take a pill thinking it's a painkiller, but actually it's a tic-tac, your headache might go away. That's the placebo effect. And the thing that's really interesting that Mati was just talking about, to me at least, is that even if you know it's a tic-tac, that it's not going to make the pain go away, be by painkiller, like it's not going to be ibuprofen, it's not going to be acetaminophen, it's not going to be oxytocin, cotton, whatever. Um, taking it will still work. Yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? That's, and, and I think part of what's important is that um, oftentimes 
people can talk about the placebo effect like it is a bad thing. Like, oh, it's just placebo effect, which if you're researching like specific drugs and their effectiveness, then sure, you don't want to find out your drug only works by placebo. But if you are trying to feel better and to recover and to heal, the placebo effect is absolutely your friend. Oh, yeah. Because <laughs> it's part of your healing process. Absolutely. And, and so we, we just covered so many of the ways that we are trying to understand how an SSRI has this impact. Mm-hmm. But the bottom line is that even though we, are, we continue to learn about these medications that we are, we've studied for decades yeah. at this point, the bottom line is that through a lot of research and clinical trials is that by disabling or blocking this reuptake uh-huh. through the SSRI mechanism, what we observe is that overall we see improvements in a lot of these serotonergic-related components that we mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. like, for example, mood or anxiety. And we see that these things improve through research on these medications in a safe way gotcha. without concerns at a drastic level or at a population level that would prevent us from using this medication. I'm, I'm hearing a hypothetical listener who's listened thus far and is interested and is like, okay, pigeons, castles, I'm following your crazy analogy, but... How does an SSRI, how does this whole process actually improve mood? Mm-hmm. And I think what I'm hearing you say is, we don't really know <laughs> after decades of research, but we know it does. Right, right. So what happened is that we, the way we understand, or if you will, not understand medications, mm-hmm. it's actually very common which is a surprise to most folks outside the medical field. Yeah. Where you're like, wait, are you telling me we don't completely understand how a lot of these medications work? Yeah. Well, yeah, I'm telling you that. <laughs> if, if, I'm a, if I'm a listener at home, what medications might I have in my like cabinet, in my bathroom cabinet, that we don't actually understand how they work? You might have NSAIDs, like ibuprofen or acetaminophen, which, sure, we continue to discover how they have, for example, anti-inflammatory properties that, by effect, can reduce, let's say, pain, muscular pain or headache. Mm. They also may have some other properties like antipyretic properties, which can decrease a fever. But Mm. these are two separate things that we discover with time. It's just like we discover in other medications that were intended for one purpose, and somehow we realized they had a purpose on something else. Like, a, for example, a medication for blood pressure uh-huh. used in historically in veterans for different purposes, that eventually we realized that they were treating chronic nightmares. Oh. So that's how a lot of these drugs come to be. So I guess, listener, you and I are both getting our little existential crisis of the episode (laughs) and learning that the painkillers that you've been taking likely your whole life to deal with headaches, muscle aches, and high fevers, you can't 
you can't sit down and diagram out how they do what they do. We just know they do. Now, look, we have educated guesses, though. Sure, 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 sure. But we continue to discover more and more. Yeah. And and, and some of these are more complicated than others. You know, mm-hmm. some medications have, for the lack of a better word, simpler sure. methods of action. Sure. Some of them are a little more complicated. So what we've seen historically in some psychiatric things is, for example, with antidepressants or SSRIs, we see most of these things are derived from other medications that were right. previously being studied or from herbs and other things. Right. So historically, we've seen things like St. John's wort. Right. A supplement or a, or a natural herb that some folks um, were consuming, and they noticed that there were some possible improvements in mood Mm -hmm. and through research we started maybe understanding that the component among several in st john's word that was that seemed to contribute to these changes was the serotonergic component so we isolate and purify that Uh we real we understand oh this works by blocking the reuptake and lo and behold we create an SSRI. Yeah. And we start seeing how can we take this medication to improve symptoms of mood and anxiety safely. Right. And this is how a lot of the drugs are discovered. Yeah. So we've we've talked broadly about how SSRIs work and the kinds of things that they have an impact on. Mm-hmm. Specifically, if a patient comes to you what kinds of symptoms or experiences yeah. would they that they're reporting would make you think maybe an SSRI would be a good thing to try? Yes. SSRIs have a variety of indications. That's why we also like this family, because they are effective at addressing several things. Right. Typically, we are talking in the mood realm, in the mm-hmm. anxiety realm, and the obsessive compulsive side of things. Okay. So generally speaking, we can break it down into meth by meth, but generally speaking, the family of SSRIs is indicated for major depressive disorder, mm-hmm. for generalized anxiety disorder, mm-hmm. for social anxiety disorder, for panic disorder, for PTSD, mm-hmm. for OCD, on premenstrual dysphoric disorder. Mm-hmm. These are folks who experience severe symptoms related to mood and anxiety mm-hmm. previous to their menstrual cycle. Yeah. But we also have research indicating more off-label indications for SSRIs. Mm-hmm. Among those, some of the most common are basomotor symptoms of perimenopause, just like hot flashes or night sweats. Oh. Mm-hmm. And for some folks, Premature ejaculation can be treated with SSRIs, and that's why we will talk a little bit later too. But yeah. why, why I was referring to sexual functions and SSRIs earlier on at yeah. serotonin, because when you're talking about things involved that are like the result of like sexual development, normal sexual development, and something like premature ejaculation, at that point the impact on sexual functioning isn't exclusively a psychological impact. 
Right. There's something physiological there. Yes. And listener, just so you know the difference, psychological means it's something happening in your mind, primarily in your brain. Physiological means there's something happening with the mechanics of your body, something happening in your organs separate from your brain or central nervous system. Sure. So we can we can use SSRIs effectively for so many of these things. And again, to summarize, typically related to depression, anxiety, or OCV-like experiences. So, so let's say I've, I'm, a, I'm a patient, I've come to you reporting one of these or multiple of these, because that's pretty common, right? Yeah. A lot of people report anxiety and depression at the same time, trauma and anxiety, trauma mm-hmm. and depression. They tend to cluster. Yes. And you've said, okay, I think an SSRI would be a good fit for you. Mm-hmm. I say, yes, sir, I'll start taking it. <laughs> what happens next? Yeah, no, that's a great one. So once we discuss starting a medication, there are different things that would be prudent or important to discuss. The first thing is to discuss timeline and possible expectations on how the medication might contribute to some effects. Now, generally speaking, we have some, let's say, standard expectations on how things should progress. But it's important to highlight that this does depend on the person. Sure. Everyone has different mental health experiences, different bodies, metabolisms, genes. So it's important to consider the individual when expecting how the medication may have an effect. Mm -hmm. That being said, usually within the first week or two, we should start noticing some effects particularly in our sleep, energy, appetite. And some things may take a little longer to produce a noticeable effect. And sometimes within four to eight weeks, we start noticing improvements in our mood, in our anhedonia, amotivation, anxiety. Mm -hmm. And for those who don't know, amotivation... It's the lack of motivation or difficulties with motivation. In anhedonia, it's essentially difficulties experiencing pleasure mm-hmm. or joy. In the way I typically describe it, when someone is experiencing anhedonia and depression, it's not that they are particularly feeling dramatically down or acutely depressed, but that their life is just great. Yeah, yep. it's flavorless. It's it's just gray joyless yeah i i i feel like anhedonia is one of the symptoms of depression that we don't talk about as much but and and i'm glad we're underscoring it here because i there there was research that i heard about way back in grad school and i've never checked up on so for all i know it might be completely made up but what i heard (laughs) is that um people who are experiencing depression clinical depression if you give them a color spectrum and say, identify for me where one color becomes another. They'll take like a section of a rainbow and they'll identify three or four colors. If you take people who aren't clinically depressed and give them those same color spectrums, they'll identify five or six on the same spectrum. So what this, uh, what this research suggests is that literally when you're depressed, your world is more gray. Mm-hmm. Colors are less vibrant food is less tasteful when mm-hmm. you say like there's the taste is gone like literally physiologically yes. again there's that word 
um, you experience less of the world. And the way that people get to this in like questionnaires and things like that, oftentimes it uses the phrase or the idea of things being less pleasurable than they used to be. Yes. I used to enjoy watching football with my friends. Now I just go through the motions. Yeah. It's kind of whatever now. Yeah. And anhedonia is a more common symptom of depression than like being really weepy all Mm -hmm. over the place. Yeah. So if, if I'm hearing you right, if I'm taking an SSRI and it's going to work for me, even, and I'm taking the right amount, it can take up to two weeks before I notice any effect. Uh, and I'll probably notice it first on my sleep and my appetite and the amount of energy I have day to day. And then it can take up to two months, even if it's the right med for me, yes. for me to notice an impact on my mood. Yes. And Oof. that is a little bit related to the mechanisms that we were discussing earlier. Right. The way these pigeons start communicating and having a downstream of effects and, and you know, making route changes and incorporating donkeys and, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Ma- and, and incorporating more castles to network with. This takes a little bit of time. Right. And that's when we see some of these things taking a little bit longer to improve. And I like that you mentioned something about the right dose, mm. because this is something that I unfortunately see a lot. Mm-hmm. I see a lot of folks who come to me and unfortunately think that SSRIs don't work. And I understand why they say that. They unfortunately had a poor experience with them. Uh-huh. And once we dig a little deeper, their experiences with SSRIs were with subtherapeutic tiny doses. Mm. Maybe they were the right initiation doses. Uh-huh. You know, let's start with a small dose. That's perfect, and we'll talk about it in a minute. But after starting with a tiny baby dose, we needed to increase that dose to therapeutic levels. In other words, most folks take ibuprofen for, let's say, a little bit of a headache or m- muscular pain in general. Sure. And as you may or may not remember, the smallest typical tablet of ibuprofen is 200 milligrams. Mm-hmm. Now, some folks are receiving what would be the equivalent of 10 milligrams of ibuprofen and telling me, hey, look, man, I've tried ibuprofen, but it doesn't do anything for my headache. Wow. And it's unfortunate because they are right. They, uh-huh. they, they truly are. They, they're, they're that the medication they tried didn't help them unfortunately and and honestly that sucks yeah but it's part of our role as clinicians to explain why there's still a good chance that this medication might be helpful we just need to use the right doses yeah to use to use maybe a more illicit analogy i I think most of our listeners are probably familiar with feeling the effects of alcohol right? It sounds like what you're describing is like someone being given a thimble full of wine and drinking it and saying, you know what? I tried drinking alcohol and I didn't really feel the euphoria and the loss of inhibitions and those things that people drink it for. I guess it doesn't work for me. And you're saying, well, yeah, it's because you had a thimble full of wine. Right. Like, people drink that much on Sunday mornings and give it to babies. Like, <laughs> you're fine. <laughs> right. You kind of need right. more to actually feel the effects. Yes. Yeah. Now, cool. one of the things that I also see often mm-hmm. is sometimes 
thinking that the medication may not work because it didn't work before. Mm-hmm. And we we just mentioned how dosing could be an issue. Sure. But also the trial time can be another factor. You and I were talking about how some of these things like mood or anxiety take maybe up to eight weeks to start producing a noticeable effect. Mm-hmm. And I see folks who sometimes try the medication for a month, didn't notice any improvement, and stopped the medication. Uh. So usually we don't consider that necessarily an adequate trial of the medication. Yeah. Where we may have noticed some of these improvements, but we didn't give the medication enough time, if I'm making any sense. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, what I'm hearing is, like, if you are trying out a new SSRI on Halloween, (laughs) like, you won't really know if it works until the new year. Mm -hmm. And that's actually a pretty long time. Yes. And it requires some patience, it sounds like. Yes, yes. And it's, I I would say, arguably, my least favorite thing of SSRIs. They are incredible, and we'll continue to talk about why, but... Mm -hmm. I I think probably my least favorite thing is that they take a little bit of time. Yeah. You know, and we want to be safe and prescribe mm-hmm. safely. And, you know, it might take time. Now, that being said, most folks I see notice a response earlier than eight weeks. Yeah. But, you know, it's important to be mindful that we might need a little bit of extra patience. Yeah. And while adjusting that dose. Mm-hmm. A lot of folks and I have a discussion where adjusting a higher dose doesn't necessarily mean more acuity. In mm. other words, a lot of folks are having discussions about dosing and may feel a little guarded about increasing the dose, thinking that, I, I, I don't know if, if, if I need a higher dose because I'm not let's say, suicidal right now. Right. And that's not necessarily what dosing means. Uh You know, someone might not be acutely suicidal at the time, but they might still actually be severely depressed or severely anxious. Mm -hmm. But noticing what we call a partial response to the medication. In other words, we see that some things are feeling a little better, Mm -hmm. But there's some room for improvement. And what this typically means, it's not necessarily that there's more or less acuity, but that your body, your genes, your metabolism might benefit from a higher dose. Right. It it makes me think about how it's kind of known that like people who are redheads oftentimes require more um, anesthetic to to actually like go under for surgery why their genes Mm -hmm. are just that way yes right so like if you have a five to 110 pound woman with like bright red hair she might need more anesthetic to make it through a tonsillectomy sure than a six to 225 pound man with blonde hair Right. That's just like that's just a thing that doctors know. It doesn't mean that the shorter woman is like going to be experiencing significantly more pain or is a problem or has anything exactly. wrong with her. It's just a different 
body's way of processing the dose. Exactly. So being on like a much higher dose of an SSRI doesn't necessarily mean that you're more broken or more depressed exactly. or have more trouble than anyone else. That's right. It just means your body needs a certain dosage for the SSRI to do its job. Yes. So what I try to joke around with folks in general is, look, we're, we're going to see this a little bit like we're going to go to the back of Target uh-huh. and try a few shirts. I don't want a shirt that's too little for you. Mm-hmm. I don't want a sub-therapeutic dose that's not going to do anything. Right. And I also don't want this humongous shirt on you and over-medicate for no reason. Mm-hmm. I want the right shirt for you, for right. your body, your experience, your genes, and your metabolism. And I, I, I think working together, we can figure that out. And, mm-hmm. and with, with how long the timelines are for SSRIs, does that mean that it can take a long time to find the right dose for people? That's a good question. And typically, within the initiation period mm-hmm. of four to eight weeks, it should be enough guideline for us to see. In okay. other words, we should notice at least a partial response. Right. Similarly to what I was saying before, where we notice some improvement. And sure, there might be some room for improvement where we can continue addressing and improving our mood and anxiety. But by eight weeks, we should notice some effects. Yeah. If for some reason, we don't notice any improvements on this medication, or it's an extremely rare case where we'll talk about adverse effects in a minute, but where things are feeling uncomfortable, it's appropriate to change medications. And this would be appropriate to change to a second SSRI, Mm. to a sister medication Mm -hmm. that's similarly enough to produce good effects, but different enough to create a separate response, a response that ideally would be better and more tolerated. Gotcha. Yeah, because there's not just one SSRI. So it's kind of like, to use our pigeons analogy, <laughs> different SSRIs are kind of like different time-off schedules for your surf who goes out and collects the pigeons, right? They, they'll have different impacts, um, different ways of, of, of working. Right. Just like in NSAIDs, you have acetaminophen or Tylenol right, or ibuprofen or Advil. The same class of drug, the same mechanic, but slightly different effects. Exactly. And so you use them for different situations. Mm-hmm. Let's talk a little bit about, about um, timeline and like starting and stopping. Because yeah. I know that like unlike something like a stimulant, you know, Adderall or something like that, or even like a, like a, hydroxyzine Mm -hmm. or certain anxiety medications ssris they kind of have a rhythm to them yes that is it's not a good idea to go off script basically no you're absolutely right man and here's the thing when we start or stop a medication we want to do it progressively Mm -hmm. that's the best way to prevent any adverse effects and to do it safely and to make this a smooth transition for you and your body so By starting the medication low and slow, is the way we say it, Mm -hmm. we can do two things. Try some of these shirts in the dressing room Uh and uh make sure we find that right size for you and not do under or over prescription. 
mm-hmm. and also prevent possible adverse effects, particularly if someone is to have an excessive amount of serotonin out of nowhere by SSRIs or other serotonergic medications, mm. including herbal things like St. John's word, yeah. they might experience something called serotonin syndrome, mm. which can be concerning. Yeah, It can be a reason to be hospitalized. Wow. Where we are experiencing tremors, high fevers, and mm. sweating, and other possibly concerning symptoms. Yeah. So to prevent something like serotonin syndrome, we go progressively through small increments. Mm-hmm. On the other side, if we've been taking a serotonergic medication for a little bit, and with this continued cold turkey, we might experience serotonin withdrawal, mm-hmm. where we, our body starts experiencing what we call flu-like symptoms, for example, some malaise, uh-huh. headaches, nausea. So typically both to start or to stop medication, we recommend everyone to do it with their provider and do it progressively, to do it safely, to prevent any uncomfortable experiences. It's it sounds kinda like the because we know however these drugs are doing their job, it involves making big, slow changes to a big complicated process. And so if you make a sudden change in the drug, then your brain has to react quicker than it's prepared for. Whereas if you make the slow changes, then your brain is able to respond slowly. And all the pigeons get confused. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Confused pigeons wandering around. Right. (laughs) And when it comes to timeline, Mm. which was one of your questions, it obviously varies case by case. But what we've learned through research is that once we achieve at least some response on the medication, partial response, maybe full response, it's recommended to take this medication for 12 months, depending on the literature, 12 Mm. 12 to 16 months. Mm -hmm. Because what we've learned is that folks who stop the medication earlier than this timeline might have a higher risk for relapse. So what we want is to set up folks for for success and, you know, treat this major depressive episode and not have another one. So by following this timeline that we observe through research, we create the best success chances. It's kind of like when people get braces, you're encouraged to wear a retainer for a certain amount of time afterwards to prevent them from returning. Yes, I, I like that analogy too, and I often also talk about antibiotics. Mm, yeah, and how you know you might get a prescription for ten days of an antibiotic, and you might start feeling better and great around day four. But to prevent from this infection from resurfacing and to fully eliminate it, mm-hmm. it's good to do the whole ten days of the treatment. Right. Yep. So let's talk about it. This is the number one thing I hear about about SSRIs, partially probably because I work with a lot of adolescents, and I know that's especially concerning. (laughs) The black box warning, the adverse effects, (laughs) what scary, scary things can happen. So, like with any, any and every single drug, and this includes not just medications, but I'm talking alcohol, 
Mm-hmm. I'm talking cannabis. I'm talking mm-hmm. caffeine. Every drug has possible adverse effects. Yes. That being said, let's focus on SSRIs. Mm-hmm. Here's one of my favorite things. SSRIs are amongst the best tolerated medications in medicine. So best tolerated. Yeah. That sounds like it means SSRIs are some of the medications that the fewest people have negative side effects to. Yes. Or that the most amount of people can take without having any side effect at all. Yeah. Many folks can take these medications without any adverse experiences. Better than Tylenol? Better than ibuprofen? In the long term, yes. Wow. Most Oh right, because if you take if you take that stuff too regularly, you get like liver kidney exactly. issues. Most folks don't or shouldn't mm. take some of these medications regularly, like ibuprofen or Tylenol. Right. But some of what in in the research that we've done with these folks that some of them take these medications chronically or yeah. long term, yeah, they are extremely well tolerated. However, mm. there are poor experiences. Yes, and the main focus or let's say period to experience adverse effects mm-hmm. is during the initiation. So those very first few weeks. Yeah, and I would say the first few days. Oh, wow. Even so, before any positive effects exactly. kick in. Oh. So we mentioned how, let's say, sleep energy might start, you know, producing an effect within the first week or two, more than anxiety within four to eight weeks. Side effects are going to appear in day one. Mm-hmm. If you are someone who might experience side effects on SSRIs, you're going to have them right away. Immediately. Mm. However, if you're among those folks who experience side effects, it's very, very, very likely that these side effects are limited to the first week. Huh. Why is this? For example, (laughs) why is that? (laughs) One of the most common side effects are related to our GI system. Oh. Many folks experience some diarrhea or nausea uh-huh. during the first few days. That's it. It self-resolves. They never have it again. As wow. you may or may not remember, when we were talking about the impacts that serotonin has in our body, mm-hmm. we talked about peristalsis. We talked about nausea and vomiting systems. Right. Which means that our gut has not only produces, but has serotonin receptors. So this mechanism of production and receiving Mm -hmm. has to adjust to a new drug that's affecting serotonin. Right. So for a few days, things get a little funny in our stomach. (laughs) Yeah. And folks may experience some diarrhea or nausea. Again, a lot don't. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But those who do experience side effects may have some of these GI side effects. Right. Other folks may experience headaches. Mm-hmm. For the first few days, and for similar reasons, there's some adjustments in our central nervous system related to serotonin. Again, GI symptoms, headaches, these mm-hmm. are likely temporary. We, we try to, for the lack of a better word, to push 
through those first few days while managing those symptoms. So mm-hmm. maybe we take an ibuprofen for the headaches. Right. Maybe we drink a little bit more water for our GI side effects or not. Uh-huh. And after the first few days, those who experience side effects don't experience these anymore. Okay. Well, that doesn't sound too bad. Right. So which makes these medications in the long term, right. after these first few few days, extremely tolerable. It sucks that it's likely to be the first thing you experience. I know, I know. <laughs> that's a, that that kind of that's unfortunate. It is, it is, and it, that's why I think it's important to, to have these discussions mm. so that folks know this may happen, right. and it doesn't mean it, it doesn't mean that the medication may not work on you. It doesn't mean that the medication may be worse for you. Mm-hmm. This may happen. We may have a little bit of diarrhea or headaches, but it should self-resolve. Yeah. And you know what? If for some reason it doesn't, we will change this medication. Yeah. We're not going to continue. Our purpose here is to improve the quality of your life, not to add another problem. <laughs> right, <laughs> right. Now, that being said, there's another common side effect, which typically, I think, should be talked about more, mm. mm-hmm. which is sexual dysfunctions. Right. We mentioned how serotonin has an effect on our sexual functioning. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of patients, clients, and clinicians shy away from this conversation. Because mm, it's awkward to talk about sex. It's awkward to talk about sex. Mm-hmm. And I think it's important to create a space and a framework where we can provide the opportunity to talk about this right. in a tactful way, not, sure. not forceful. But just normalizing and, and, and educating that this is a possibility mm-hmm. and that if you feel comfortable, I would be more than glad to talk about this, right? to address it. And like I said a minute ago, our purpose is to make your life a little better, not to take things away like sex. Right. And I, I might... I'll I'll decide if it, to include this in the episode or not. But one of the things that I've heard before from people, not just in, in the therapy office, but online friends in my life, is how sometimes you'll be really depressed, you'll feel awful, and one of the few things that will predictably make you feel good might be sexual activity. Yes. Either with a partner or alone. And then you take this medication that's supposed to help you feel better eventually. And the first thing it does is take away the one pleasurable activity you could rely on. Mm-hmm. And that sucks. <laughs> oh, I agree. And I, I, what I'm hearing you say is like, yeah, it super sucks. And if you can talk to your doctor, talk to your therapist about it, talk to your providers, then you will hopefully learn this is probably short term. Yes, this sucks. And if you push through it, then you will see the benefit of the drug these functions will come back and maybe i don't know there are things that you can do and things that you can adjust to compensate for that loss of sexual function yes and it all starts with being able to talk about it right i can't remember from the top of my head the number we can obviously search it after sure but there was from previous research a huge percentage like something tells me like 80 percent of female identified patients uh-huh. who experience sexual dysfunctions on SSRIs don't feel comfortable to bring them up during the visit. 
during the appointment, wow. which eventually contributes to them stopping the medication on their own because they were experiencing these adverse effects. Right. And the bottom line is that that sucks. Yeah. I want us to be able to talk about anything that may be stressing you. Yeah. And sexual dysfunctions and your sex sex life in general is important mm-hmm. and relevant. And if we want to improve the quality of your life, I want us to talk about it. And it doesn't have to be unnecessarily awkward. So yeah. the way... You know, I'm obviously paraphrasing, but the way usually goes on an appointment, I would say something like, look, among other things that we may experience on these medications, there's also the possibility to experience sexual side effects. Mm -hmm. Some folks experience decreased libido, anorgasmia, erectile dysfunctions. And I hope that if you are experiencing any of these, you can feel comfortable letting me know because mm-hmm. we can address it. There are things we can do for that. Yeah. And and honestly, once you bring it up like that, you know, normalizing it, typically folks tell you, you know what, I actually wanted to talk about that. Yeah. And if folks are experiencing that, there's a chance that it will self-improve, just mm-hmm. like you were saying. But if it doesn't, and that happens to some people, sure, there are typically three routes. Okay. One of them is adding a second medication that cancels the sexual-related component of serotonin. Mm -hmm. And usually these are medications that have a bonus effect for whatever the the patient is experiencing. Gotcha. So it might be a medication that is also useful for depression. Mm. So we have a medication that helps depression and sexual side effects. Great. I know. Other possibilities is switching to a different medication right? to create a, the, the similar therapeutic response without the sexual side effects. Mm-hmm. And then the third and honestly common option for many folks is keeping the medication. Some folks tell me, you know, I noticed some decreased libido, mm-hmm. but I'm not concerned about it. Right. And that's the key point. Some yeah. folks, decreased libido and orgasmia, is an, it's something that we need to address, and it's a big no-no. And look, fair enough. Sure. For other folks, they, they tell me, look, I, you know, I, I've noticed decreased libido, and me and my partner talked about it, but it's, it's not a problem, at least for now, and I'm feeling so much better that I don't want to change this medication. Yeah. And, you know, fair enough. Yeah. If for some reason these circumstances change, let's revisit this. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, that sounds, it sounds like the most important thing is to be able to talk about it. Yes. Because if, if you decide that the side effect is worth the benefit of the drug, great. But if you don't have room to talk about it and think about it, then you're not really deciding. <laughs> and that's the problem. Yep, that's right. Hello, listener. Editor Tyson here. I just wanted to make a quick note before we continue this conversation. Mati and I are about to discuss the black box warning, and I realized I never actually defined it in our conversation. Uh, He and I just know what that is and (laughs) just rolled with it. Um, The black box warning is a 
uh, what used to be called the black box warning, now just called a box warning, is something that the FDA puts on medications that could have potentially life-threatening side effects. Uh, It's the highest level of warning that the FDA uh, gives a drug in the U.S. And on SSRIs, there is a black box warning to indicate that people under the age of 24 years old may take the drug and then their risk for suicide might go up. So Matia and I are about to discuss that warning and um, that potential side effect of taking SSRIs. Um, Okay, back to the show. So let's let's talk about it. Let's talk about the big scary one. Yeah. That black box warning yes. that I hear about yes. all the time. It sounds like that is among some of the more rare side effects. Yes. Yes. Com- in contrast to maybe headaches or GI mm-hmm. side effects, the black box warning is uh, on the rare side of things. Mm-hmm. Now this is particularly a very controversial point in psychiatry. Mm. <laughs> so get your swords and your pigeons going. <laughs> okay, here we go. We're going to war. <laughs> but the history behind that black box warning is a controversial one because the research used for it had some possible flaws or design flaws, arguably. Interesting. When we are studying different groups of younger folks, particularly below 24 years old, Mm -hmm. we may have observed a selection bias. Okay. So what we did did while researching this is separating based on depression acuity. And what we did is, okay, maybe the, the mild to moderate depression could be addressed with therapy only. Mm -hmm. And the third group of the very acutely depressed may benefit from starting an antidepressant like an SSRI. Yeah. So what we've seen is that in that third group, some of the folks that were 24-year-old or younger had more episodes of suicidal ideation Versus the other two groups. Uh huh. My opinion, and and this is based on the literature, is what others may agree on, mm-hmm. is that this is expected. Mm-hmm. There's there's a, a clear expectation that the most severely and acutely depressed will have a greater chance for suicidal thoughts. Right. With or without medication. Right. So you you have to take that little black box warning with a grain of salt. Gotcha. Now, the second important point about it, the, regardless of that research, comes with the timeline of response for these medications. We've talked before how some things improved earlier than others, like yeah. energy. Yeah. improves way faster than our mood and anxiety. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So what's hypothesized is that folks who were severely depressed, possibly already having some suicidal ideations, you know, they were experiencing tiredness, fatigue, lack of motivation uh-huh. to act on these suicidal thoughts. Gotcha. Now, 
you give them a medication that may increase their energy before their mood. Mm. And it's hypothesized that in some of these cases, you are helping get some of the energy they may have needed Mm. to act on those suicidal thoughts. Gotcha. Am I making sense? Yeah, yeah. It sounds like the research around that, that like initiated this black box warning is controversial and it may be designed so that it's more likely to have be studying people who are already at really high risk of suicidal thoughts and the way that the mechanisms work your mood is one of the later things that actually improves and if you're really depressed and really really down and really low energy and then all of a sudden you have energy but you're still really depressed and still really down you might have the energy to explore and think about and act on things that previously might have just been kind of a passive background idea because you were too depressed and low energy to do anything. Yes. The energy comes first, but it's a question of where does that energy gets pointed at until the mood kicks in. Yes. Now, all this being said, we talked about common side effects and we talk Mm. about some of these rare ones. Regardless of common or rare, there are two important things that I want to reiterate. Yeah. The first one is to prevent a lot of these. That's why we start slow. Yeah. And we go gentle with you and your body. And the second point is that's why we also check in. Why it's not that we should prescribe this medication and tell you come back in six months. Right. We typically tell you come back in a few weeks. Yeah. So Mm -hmm. we check in. And I'm around for messages, for calls, for anything. In case you're feeling unwell or concerned, I want you to talk to me. Yeah. Because we can do something about it. Yeah. Yeah. That that feels really huge because I know a lot of people... I was talking to someone recently who like was given a prescription for an SSRI by a provider. And they're just kind of holding on to it. And they don't really have a follow-up planned. And I, I think partially based off of this conversation, I will encourage them, hey, look, if you do decide to take to start taking it, schedule a follow-up with your provider pretty soon afterwards. Because I don't think, kind of like with psychotherapy, we don't want you to be on your own in the process. With psychopharmacology, we don't want you to be alone in the process. (laughs) It's a complicated thing. And having access to your support network is pretty important. And and it's important to keep this communication going, right? Yeah. Just like I was mentioning about sex, now about starting or stopping medication and about everything else. Yeah. The idea is to create this collaboration between us and clients or patients mm-hmm. and figure this out together and safely. And I think, I think a lot of people can get the sense that like, my doctor wants me to take this medication. If I don't want to, then we're in an argument. Right. And what I'm hearing you say is like, no. You want your patients to feel better. I read. And if the medication isn't working for them, it's not like you're on the side of the meds. You're on the side of the patient. I I tell everyone, I my only jersey and my team is team you. Mm -hmm. I'm I'm not pro or against drugs. I don't collaborate with with any pharmaceutical representatives in particular. Mm -hmm. My only goal is to help guide what could possibly make some improvements in your life. Yeah. And I typically tell everyone, look, my role here 
is to give you the best clinical recommendation I have. Mm-hmm. And that is as far as I go. Yeah. You are the driver in this relationship, and I'm your co-pilot. I will tell you what my science map says. Look, mm-hmm. my science map says it might be better if we turn left here. Sure. But yeah. you're the driver, and you should have control and autonomy mm-hmm. on your body, on your recovery, and help me help you. Right. I want to discuss the options. I want you to have time to think about them. Yeah. And I, w- I want to help you feel better. I'm not here to tell you what to do. Mm-hmm. I'm here to consult with you and give you m- my expertise. Right. But that's it. Yeah. I like that a lot. <laughs> I like that a lot. So, okay. We've talked now. It's like probably like an hour or so <laughs> into this conversation. Um, what what do you what are the like bullet point takeaways yes. what are you hoping that people will will come away from this episode having in their minds yeah no i, I love that question and i want us to have the information on the table all the cards to make the informed decision that i think everyone deserves to make mm-hmm. so what are the possible cons of ssris mm-hmm. they take a little bit of time to work that's my least favorite thing yeah The first few days can be challenging for some folks. That diarrhea or headache can be difficult. Will it self-improve? Oh, very likely. But we still have to make it for a few days. Mm -hmm. And that can be difficult. Yeah. And for some folks, those sexual side effects may not go away. Right. We have options, though. Right. And I would love to discuss them with anybody that's interested in doing our appointments. Mm -hmm. However. The reason why these medications are typically the first line of treatment for these presentations related to depression, anxiety, OCD, PTSD, Mm -hmm. are because they are extremely well tolerated, especially in the long term. Mm -hmm. They are safe. They are very safe medications, even during pregnancy, which is a difficult part of psychiatry. Yeah. They are long term safe. And their long-term use has not yielded any significant concern for folks who take it for longer periods of time. Mm-hmm. These are non-habit-forming or non-addictive medications, and they don't produce any euphoria or immediate effects. They, you know, as we talked, they take a little bit of time to yeah, work. Yeah, they don't really work to get high. They're difficult exactly. to abuse in a way that human beings prefer to abuse drugs. Right. And besides being well-tolerated and safe, they are effective. They work. They reduce the frequency, the duration, and the intensity of the symptoms. They've been studied for so long now that they are generic, which means they are cheap. Yep. Most folks can pay around or less than $10 for the whole month. Yeah. Which in the world of medication costs, that's pretty good. Yeah, that's drops in the bucket. And overall, we use them as first line for all these reasons and as a clinical bullet point, Mm -hmm. if you will. I love working with folks who are experiencing mood, depression, trauma-related responses, OCD, and trying these medications because, you know, we work through the first few weeks. It takes a little bit of patience. We wait for some different response variables noticing that there's some mood improvement anxiety and folks start telling me things like man 
I think I feel like myself mm-hmm. I don't think I felt like this since I was 18. Yeah. Since I was in high school or before COVID, if you will. Yeah. And, I, and people start feeling like themselves again. Mm-hmm. And often they say something like, man, why didn't we do this earlier? <laughs> and I'm like, I know, I, yeah. I, I completely get it. I'm, and I, but look, I'm glad you're feeling better now and we'll keep moving forward. But mm-hmm. overall, these are solid medications. And they, of course, go w- very well with therapy and what you all do. And they can, you know work hand by hand and be a dream team yeah that's i i love that as a way to wrap up because that that definitely fits my experience as someone who doesn't prescribe these things but does see people as they benefit from them um and just i want to acknowledge for the listeners sake like we have really scratched the surface here like We've talked a lot about SSRIs today, how they work as far as we know, what sorts of things they work on, how to get started on them, how to get off of them, things to be aware of, things to talk to your prescriber about. Um, listener, we have pages of notes that we didn't get to. <laughs> if, if anyone listening to this is interested in hearing more about SSRIs, email us and let us know, and we'll bring Mati back on. Um, in the meantime... Do you have um, any experiments or further learning to recommend to our listeners with the understanding that, listener, we will never recommend you experiment with drugs? <laughs> That's right. I think my, my experiment for anybody who's interested in this topic and or possibly experiencing concerns related to anxiety, depression, trauma, OCD is to communicate. Mm-hmm. Just like we were saying before about other things, bring it up. Yeah. Bring it up with your therapist, with your meth provider. Open that gap. Open mm-hmm. that channel and, and, and have a discussion about how this may be or not beneficial for you. Yeah. And how we maybe getting some answers could be the starting point for hopefully feeling a little better, a little more in control and, you know, not leaving that gray joyless flavorless life anymore right yeah yeah and then what if people are just more intellectually curious Mm -hmm. maybe maybe they are interested in taking meds maybe not but this idea this that this conversation is fascinating to them where would you recommend somebody get started to just keep learning more about this stuff yeah you know there are multiple pharmacology books and different source materials that come to my mind at times those might get a a little too technical for Mm -hmm. folks who want to get their toes wet if that makes any sense and that's part of what i'm trying to work on i'm trying to work on digestible information for for patients and clients and a little bit of, of of maybe material for therapists yeah like you were mentioning before before Going into psychiatric nurse practitioning, I was a clinical psychologist, and I think there might be a little bit of a disconnection between the world of therapy and medications that mm-hmm. I'm hoping to to provide some material that bridges both worlds. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So watch this space, listener. Um, we we will let you know when Mati produces any materials, whether it's videos, other podcasts, handouts, uh, websites, books next time you're published we will advertise it on this podcast (laughs) 
Thank you so much for coming in today. This was a fascinating conversation. I'm very excited for more. So, yeah, thank you. This was delightful. (laughs) Thank you, man. This is always fun. Special thanks to Matias Massaro. Mati can be found at his website, CogniaHealth.com, where he publishes articles, infographics, videos, and podcasts educating providers and the public about psychotropic medications. The link to his website is in the show notes. Also in the show notes is a link to the Radio Lab episode about the placebo effect, which I mentioned earlier in our conversation. The Relational Psych Podcast is a production of Relational Psych, a mental health clinic providing depth-oriented psychotherapy and psychological testing in person in Seattle and virtually throughout Washington State. If you are interested in psychotherapy or psychological testing for yourself or a family member, links to our contact information are in the show notes. If you are a psychotherapist and would like to be a guest on the show, or are a listener with a suggestion for someone you'd like us to interview, you can contact me at podcast at relationalpsych.group. The Relational Psych Podcast is hosted and produced by me, Tyson Connor. Carly Claney is our executive producer, with technical support by Sam Claney and Allie Ray. Our music is by Ben Lewis. We love you, buddy. See you next time.